Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Michael Sechrist. Um, before we start, I'd just like to invite our listeners to sign up for our newsletter. You can go to listenlearnandlove.org, and there's a newsletter link. We encourage you to sign up. We'll send a newsletter out with top podcasts, latest church information events. It's a great place for people, especially those of you that are not on Facebook or social media, to keep track of the podcasts and the and the good content we're sharing out of listenlearnandlove.org. Um, it's a Sunday morning here in Salt Lake City. My guest, Michael, lives in California. He is in town for the weekend. So we are meeting before church to record this podcast. By background on Michael, Michael is a close friend. I have gotten to know this good man over the last several years and have had several meetings with him, and he is one of God's finest sons. And I'm just honored that he would be on the podcast today to share his journey as a gay Latter-day Saint. He offered a beautiful prayer before we started and just felt his desire to be able to share the things in his heart. It takes a lot of courage to tell your story. Um, even though you're not all sitting here, Michael rec rec recognizes that probably 7,000 to 10,000 will listen to this story. And it takes a lot of courage to share your story. Uh, Michael is in his mid-30s. Um, he's an interventional radiologist, so we could call him Dr. Michael Sechrist. Many people know him as Dr. Michael Sechrist, and he's doing great work in his professional life to heal people and to give people hope, but that's what he's also doing um, as a gay Latter-day Saint. Michael is a member of the Long Beach East Stake and has done a great deal of things along with President Fersh and many others there to create safe places um, for our LGBTQ LDS members. And we'll talk about that. And those of you that are local leaders or parents may be interested in some of the things that Michael's doing that can be scaled um, to other stakes and other wards to meet the needs of our LGBTQ members, which is what President Ballard asked us to do. So with that introduction, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Richard. Before we tell us professionally, tell us what you do professionally. Um, interventional radiology is a field that's been around for several decades, but uh, most people don't really know about us. Um, what we do, um, it, it's image-guided procedures. A lot of things that you used to need uh, to be cut open for, we can frequently do without cutting people open using image guidance to guide our tools through the arterial or venous system. We treat everything from uh, uterine fibroids to enlarged prostates to clogged arteries um, to pulmonary embolism and uh, deep vein thrombosis, um, venous reconstruction, and some kinds of cancer, um, liver, lung, uh, kidney. Um, the implications are very far reaching. It's a, a very exciting field. Um, when did you and tell our listeners where you went to medical school and tell our listeners just when you decided, because there's so many avenues, if you decide to be a doctor, tell our listeners just how you ended up zeroing in on this area of expertise. You know, it's really funny. My father was a radiologist and, uh, my first day of medical school, everyone asked, what do you want to be? And I said, well, I, I don't know, but I know it's not radiology. <laughs> I thought it was the most boring thing back then because I didn't understand it. After taking anatomy and having correlation lectures with, with CT scans and x-rays, I realized how, how really fascinating it was. Um, I intended to become a pediatrician. That's one of the reasons I went to the Medical College of Wisconsin. They have a world-class pediatric hospital there. 
um, I ended up turning away from that because I had, uh, I actually had difficulty dealing with all of the child abuse that I saw. Um, that was really hard for me. Um, I'm very protective of children. Um, I, I don't care whose child it is. I will protect any child. Um, and, um, I, I could see myself, uh, having difficulty dealing with an abusive adult, bringing a child in. And, uh, I thought I'd, I'd better remove myself from that scenario before I, I, punch some adult in the face. Um, so, um, but pediatrics was, was great. And I, I really love that field too. But um, so I, I ended up in radiology because of my love of anatomy and uh, the things that I can do there. And where did you go to med school? Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Okay. Uh, it was a really great place. Um, I went from there to uh, uh, after my internship after medical school, which I also did in Milwaukee. I went to George Washington University in DC for four years of radiology training. Wow. And then I did an additional fellowship uh, for one year at UC Irvine Medical Center for wow. interventional radiology. So six years after medical school. Yeah. So you've been on this educational, it's this great huge tunnel that you're on. <laughs> Um, and now you're in practice and I assume you're still very busy. Oh yeah. That doesn't stop. Doesn't stop. I'm going to have you pull the mic. I'm going to just have you move the mic right up to you, Michael. So, um, as Michael and I thought about this podcast, we thought we'd start with Michael sharing a a talk he gave at a state conference in Long Beach East stake as a way to introduce Michael's story. I was honored to be there to hear this talk, I think on January 19th. I'm 2019 in the Long Beach East Sticks. So why don't you just, you can either start with the talk, Michael, or give us background and then give the talk. I'll give you a little background into the talk because the way this came about was, was more than just coincidental. Um, when I moved to where I currently live in Seal Beach for this, this job, um, I have had periods inside and outside the church. I came out of the closet when I was 30 to my family. Um, and, um, so it's been six years, seven years. Um, and I thought I've had mixed experiences with the church and over the years, I've really had to develop my own personal relationship with my heavenly father. And I thought, do I give this local ward a try? Do I keep, do I go again? Do I go back? And, and you've been active in the church. Tell our listeners where you served your mission. Oh, I served a mission in uh, Southern Russia, Rostov Nadanu. Okay. Uh, I spent a good long while in Sochi where the Olympics were. That's one city everybody can recognize. Okay. And um, my whole district had a strange run-in with the police, and we had to actually leave Russia. And I finished my mission in Riga, Latvia. Awesome. Which is also actually a wonderful experience. Um, a, a series of events led to me uh, meeting my, this, my state president, uh, President Fersh. And um, he... He told me that he had, um, well, he'd been introduced to this space um, actually uh, through um, some friends of ours, Marsha and Aiden. Um, Aiden is a, a, a transgender man and uh, Marsha is his mother. Um, and they did uh, a, a leadership training actually um, with President Versch. And um, so that was his introduction to the LGBTQ space. And by way of from for our listeners, that podcast was recorded a few days before Michael's, and so that will should be released, and it will be released by the time you're hearing this podcast. You, if you want to listen to that, it's just earlier. Go ahead, Michael. Um, President first explained to me when we met that um, he had a vision of what needed to happen in the stake to help people become 
the people that um, really the disciples of Christ that we need to be to become the Savior's church and for us to be ready for him to return. And, um, and he was not quite sure how to make that happen and that he'd been praying for guidance and that um, in effect, he'd kind of prayed me there and he asked for my help um, in, in accomplishing a lot of these things. And in time, uh, within a few weeks, he, um, he told me that he needed me to, to um, give a state conference talk and to tell my story and, and tell people what it was like to be me. Um, that was, I'd never come out publicly before. My family knew, I thought, you know, the important people close to me knew. Um, and this was a step outside the box for me, outside of my comfort zone, far outside my comfort zone. Um, but um, some inspiration came and uh, I wrote this talk that I, I shared on uh, January 19th um, in our state conference on Saturday night. I want to tell you a story about a little boy. This little boy was born with hazel eyes. You and I might see hazel eyes as a beautiful and rare variation in Heavenly Father's tapestry of mortal life, but in his world, people with hazel eyes weren't trusted. They were not normal. They were seen as other and unnatural. He always knew he was somehow different and people treated him differently. He tried desperately to fit in. He wore blue contact lenses to hide his eye color. He wore them all the time and never took them out. He wore his contacts so long that even his own family members believed he had blue eyes. And it worked. He was just like everybody else. He could fit in. He went to church with the kids his age and heard lessons about heaven and eternal families and the blessings awaiting them, unless they had hazel eyes. One day he heard some high school kids talking about their favorite musician. A reporter caught him at a nightclub without his contacts. Can you believe he had hazel eyes all this time? Gross. Kids at recess made jokes and games about hazel eyes. No one wanted to get tagged and be hazel in the middle. The little boy's family went to his grandparents' house for Thanksgiving one year, and some of the family made quiet conversation about an uncle who didn't come around much. Some suspected he really had hazel eyes as well, and that he might not even be hiding it with contacts anymore. No. Why would you think that? The little boy's mother spoke up, standing up for her brother. She didn't want to believe it of her own brother. Her objection came from a place of love, but the little boy sank deeper into his chair and squeezed his eyes shut, just in case his disguise wasn't enough. He would never let anyone know his truth, his shame. He would never be one of those people even his own family despised. His mother told him frequently she loved him. They all did, but they wouldn't if they knew. It was as if he had this magnetic field surrounding him that deflected all positivity. No, I love you reached his core where he was imploding. The person his family loved was a blue-eyed blue boy who didn't really exist. Years went by and the boy hoped the contacts would grow into his eyes and he could in some sense be normal. But instead, his eyes began to hurt. They burned. The pain some days was so intense that he had trouble just functioning. His grades suffered. He got in fights with his little brother. Then one day at church, he heard someone say that everyone who kept their hazel eyes hidden would be rewarded with blue eyes in the next life. Maybe that was the answer. So he began daydreaming about how he could end his life. No one would ever need to know the shame he carried with him. He thought his death would be so much easier for his mother to deal with than the reality of an eternally damned hazel-eyed son. After years of sobbing through nightly prayers to his heavenly father to change his eyes to blue, he now had hope in death. 
Amidst his suicidal ideations, a new bishop asked to talk to him, just a routine annual youth interview. The bishop was loving and kind, and for some reason the boy felt safer than he had with other bishops. Quiet desperation bubbled to the surface. As he looked down at the carpet of the office to avoid the disgust the bishop was bound to feel, his magical blue contact lenses fell from his eyes, and his carefully crafted disguise evaporated. And I said in a choked whisper, I think I'm gay. Yep, I'm the little boy. <laughs> Welcome to my story. To this point in my life, the words I'm gay had never passed my lips, uh, largely out of fear that it would make it more true or more real. And as soon as I said it, I began to panic. Um, I thought for sure the bishop would react angrily and tell my parents I'd lose my family and I'd have to live on the street. The church would re reject me. I regretted saying those words. My life literally depended on the reaction of this man that I barely knew. But instead of the reaction I was expecting, he just said, tell me more about that. He asked me about my feelings, and at the end of our talk, he hugged me. I was shocked. Even after I told him my deepest secret, he wasn't afraid to touch me. We would have frequent conversations over the next few years, but most importantly, he listened to me and he loved me. I likely would not have lived to my 16th birthday if he... If he hadn't shown love to that scared 13-year-old boy. I went to BYU after high school, and after one year there, I served a mission in southern Russia. And um, I do want to say, um, some people think it's too hard or that missionaries who are gay shouldn't, shouldn't be able to serve a mission. Um, but on the contrary, most of the gay, Mor the gay missionaries, gay Mormons I know who have served missionaries as missionaries, um, remember their missions fondly because sexuality isn't an issue for the first time in their lives. No one's wondering why they aren't asking out the pretty girl in the ward. Um, and something else that I found is that the gay elders came equipped with a superhuman ability to love the people they served. And also like I did, most of them begged and pleaded and made deals with God to make them straight in exchange for their wholehearted service. Um, I found out years later that many of the missionaries I looked up to, zone leaders, assistants to the president, many of them were gay. Um, um, this minute, the church is benefiting from the selfless service of hundreds of gay missionaries. And unfortunately, not all of them had a loving bishop like I did. And honestly, not all of my leaders since that time have been as loving as the first one. Um, it's still painful to think about, but um, one bishop I had um, gave me what I call the scarlet letter. He put it, um, he, he told me he put an annotation on my record when I came out to him um, that would preclude me from ever holding a calling with children or um, young people. Um, and that really hurt um, for someone who I, I'm a fierce defender of children and um, that just seems so contradictory to my very nature. Um, and it's something he told me I couldn't have removed except by the first presidency. So that apparently still follows me around. Um, to be a gay member of this church is painful and I would never pass judgment on any LGBT person who chose to step away in order to preserve their mental health. Um, there are actual documented cases of post-traumatic stress sy symptoms in LGBT people because of their experience in our church. And I think it's very important to acknowledge 
their pain. By the time I completed my degrees in biology and linguistics at BYU, I was very depressed. And I took a year off before starting medical school. And during that year, I submitted myself to um, what is known as conversion therapy. Um, it's now being banned in many states, um, at least for minors. Um, I would drive several hours every week to pay this expert $300 an hour to try to make me straight. Um, and in my mind at the time, it absolutely had to work because if it didn't, there was no point in me living. Um, that year it didn't work, but I carried hope that someday the things that I learned there would, would help me to find some sort of straight existence deep inside me. Um, in medical school, I met a wonderful woman. We began to date and we became best friends. I brought her home to meet my family and I thought maybe this could work. If it was gonna work with any woman, it would be her. But whenever I thought about marrying her, I got a sick feeling. I knew that I loved her on every level, every level but one very important one, the physical. And although I knew she loved me enough to try to make it work, I felt like she needed a husband that worshiped her in every way. And it was then that I knew I finally needed to share my whole truth with my family. I came out to my mother and my father and all five siblings by telephone in one night by time zone from east to west. And the loving responses that I got for them from them were, were better than I'd expected. And um, probably the most remarkable part of this experience was when I woke up the next morning, I turned my thoughts inward and I, I, I felt the influence of the Holy Ghost was still there. I still felt the spirit and it startled me, I guess, because I wasn't sure what to expect. At this point, there was no template for me anymore. I didn't know um, would the spirit retreat from me immediately the, the moment I realized I was gay and told everyone I was gay. Um, and, um, that moment was very important and, um, it made me realize that I could still have a personal relationship with my father in heaven as an openly gay man. That was a hugely important realization. Over the next six years of postgraduate medical training, I learned a lot about myself and I allowed myself to date other men and I even fell in love once. And I, I only share this because of what it taught me. I had been so conditioned to believe that any love I had for another man would be disgusting and corrupt. But again, it surprised me. Um, the feelings that I felt were, were pure and selfless and beautiful. And I finally understood what my friends and family had said about falling in love. And rather than turning my back on my heavenly father, this experience actually brought me closer to him. And I felt like he was saying to me, you see, Mike, you see what beautiful things I have in store for you. My residency training made church attendance difficult and I felt removed from the church. I had to develop my own personal relationship with God, independent of the instruction and opinions of church leaders. I learned to rely on personal revelation, which would benefit me enormously when it came to being gay, because this was something church leaders haven't experienced and don't understand. And more often than not, they misunderstand. So I want to dispel some myths as a gay man and a doctor who has studied sexuality all his life. 
I did not choose to be gay, nor have any of the hundreds of LGBT people I know. Why would anyone choose such a harder road? If someone comes out to you, it's because they love you and want you to be a part of their life. They have always been who they are, even if it took them a while to figure it out. I'm not gay because of anything my parents did wrong, and I was not sexually assaulted as a child. However, LGBT, ch LGBT children and youth are statistically at a much higher risk of sexual assault, and these beautiful children need to be protected. Sexuality is not something that you can change, and it's not something that my Heavenly Father needs me to change or wants me to change. I know by the witness of the Spirit that I am the way He meant for me to be, and He loves me so much exactly the way that I am. My gayness is inextricably connected to my musical talents, my sensitivity to others' needs, my ability to easily love other people, and so many parts of myself that I see now as beautiful and essential to who I am. I know my father made me this way, so why would I want to change it? I've always felt the need to know how to save a life. I think there was always this small anxiety that someday somebody would be dying in front of me and I wouldn't know what to do. It's driven me to learn about physiology and pathology. And as soon as I was able, I learned basic life-saving skills. One week after my test for my emergency medical technician certification, my sister's toddler choked in front of me with no one else around. I did what I was taught to do, and I popped a large mouthful of animal crackers out of her onto the driveway. And I, I know that one of the reasons I was put here on earth is to save lives in my occupation as a physician. When I moved to Seal Beach, like I told you earlier, I considered whether or not I needed to go to the ward, given how painful it can be for us to go to church. LGBT people are five times more likely to commit suicide than their peers. And that risk is multiplied by being a part of a family community or church where homosexuality is not accepted. And we lose so many of these beautiful young people to suicide when it's completely preventable. I understand now that my mission on earth is just to save lives, not just at the hospital, but every day outside the hospital at church. And I mean to rescue as many of these young people as I can and help their families to love them unconditionally. When I was considering not coming to church, I was thinking about myself and my own comfort, but the spirit turned my thoughts around on me and told me I needed to be there, not for me, but because somebody else there needed me. And somebody there needed to know that God loves them just the way they are. I know there are people in our stake, in every stake, silently suffering. People make comments in Sunday school and to, on straight ears, their comments sound completely benign. But to someone who's sensitive to other marginalized groups, casual comments can be very hurtful. As members of the Restored Church of Jesus Christ, I think we're very fortunate, and we have more light and knowledge in one place than anywhere in history. But I think that we need to not be afraid to admit that we don't know everything. The, the Ninth Article of Faith says we believe all that God has revealed, all that He does now reveal, and we believe that He will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the Kingdom of God. I don't know how LGBT people fit into the plan of salvation, 
Um, but I have a, a good friend, Derek, in Boston who joined the church as an openly gay man. And um, by the way, he's a trained biblical scholar by profession. And he likes to say, there's more room for me in the plan of salvation than there is in the closet. I want us where we have gaps in our understanding of the gospel plan. I want us to fill in those gaps with compassion and unconditional love. I have a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe Christ died for our sins and that he loves each of us. And I think that we're in a very unique position today, now, to, to create some safe spaces for LGBT people who have felt alienated and like they had no choice but to leave or to give up. Well, I said a big amen after your talk, and maybe all our listeners, wherever you are, you can say an out loud or a silent amen, because um, you brought us back to state conference and you shared a really vulnerable, honest talk. Do you remember the reaction after the meeting? How could I forget? <laughs> Tell our listeners what happened after the meeting. I think you, President Fersh, was the concluding speaker after you, and then the meeting ended, and then what happened? Um, he... He was very brief. He spoke for about four or five minutes. Um, and as soon as the closing prayer, amen, was said, I literally got rushed up on the stand. Um, I, I'd never seen anything like it. I was, I was taken aback. I, um, there was a line of people all the way down, all the way down the aisle to, to shake my hand and talk to me. Um, I was up there for more than an hour just greeting people. Um, but the most poignant part of that was when they shook my hand, people were leaning down and whispering in my ear, I'm like you, or thank you for sharing that, or I'm a drug addict and your talk resonated with me, thank you, or I don't fit the mold either, thank you so much for saying what you said, or you know, so many things. There was so much pain that people felt that they couldn't share in a church setting because they felt different. They felt on the edge, on the, on the fringe. And then when I get up there and speak as someone perceived as so far on the fringe that most other things are, they're more able to talk about then. Um, so much pain that people can't share at church. What an interesting statement. So much pain. And um, by by putting someone like me up there, I think President Fersh gave people permission to open their hearts, to be authentic, to be vulnerable, and to speak their truth too. And a lot of healing started that day. It's a great talk, Michael. You know, I'm back in tears again as I hear it again and, and the courage you gave. And I've learned that we need, some people may hear parts of your talk and feel you know, defensive at the church or, you know, Michael's challenging the church. But I think what Michael's doing is just sharing his journey and part of his journey and every LDS LGBTQ member I've met with has pain that originates from the, I would call it the institutional side of our church, the imperfect part of our church that at times can add to the burden of its members. And I think if we don't acknowledge that pain, we can't heal people. 
And so if I asked Michael just to give a talk of and not talk about any of the pain, I don't think that's fair. Um, cause I, and I think it's part of just growing as a restored church to be able to acknowledge the pain at times that our LGBTQ members feel. And um, I thought you did a really good job of that. And so there were a couple other things that were very interesting for me. I'm having flashbacks now. I hope all our listeners can visualize the stand on in church and the stake president is sitting there and the stake president is usually in the middle and his two counselors are on the side and you were a speaker and I think you had gotten down from the choir and sat down on the front row or you stood there from the beginning and and you sat on the outside of the stake presidency where there's an open chair and and at some time before you spoke, President Fersh traded seats with his counselor and sat next to you and put his arm around you. And I just was so touched by that because I think he was aware of how difficult it was going to be for what you were going to do. And he wanted to be next to you before you gave that talk. And then he was the concluding speaker. So you, he stood as you were leaving the pulpit and he could have fist pumped you. He could have shook your hand. Do you remember what he did? He gave me a big hug. It's a big bear hug. Right in front of the whole stake, he was giving a bear hug to you, one of his dear stake members who just talked about his journey as a gay Latter-day Saint. And if I'm a member, I don't know what that did for you. You can tell us, but if I'm a member of that stake and I'm seeing my stake president do that, no matter what's going on in my life, I know I can talk to your stake president because he loves everybody. Do you remember that hug? Oh, I do. I, I needed it. Um, and, um, I remember now him switching seats and sitting next to me and I, I really needed that too. I was, I was terrified. Um, I mean, I've done a lot of performing in my life. I've, I've been on stages all over in Los Angeles and, and DC before I had a medical career. I'm pretty comfortable in front of a large group of people. Um, but this was a totally different experience. Um, for 30 minutes leading up to my talk, I, my legs were shaking uncontrollably. Um, and it, it was a, a really nice gesture for him to sit next to me. And you had been a member of this stake for not very long. So it's not like you were coming out to, you know, friends that you knew. You were coming out to a lot of people you didn't know. About 400 strangers. About 400 strangers. Um, just a great talk, Michael. I just love the hazel eye, blue eyes. I wrote down so many lines that, you know... Um, one way to have blue eyes is to die by suicide. Um, and just the, the shame around having hazel eyes and wanting to have blue eyes. Um, talk about, talk to our LGBTQ LDS members that are suicidal. Um, or others that are trying to help them. You know that road. You've been open about that road um, to me and in this podcast and in that talk. Um, talk to others about that road and what we can do. Those people are, I believe, the reason that the Spirit told me I needed to come back to church when I moved to California. Um, I remember what it was like to be scared and alone and feel like there was no reason to live. 
um, you want to come to church and have a safe place where you can feel spiritually nourished. But when you're a child or young person or anyone actually who, who is LGBT, you internalize a lot of messages um, from church to mean you're broken, you're unacceptable to God, you have no place in the plan of salvation. And that does incalculable damage to your your spirit, your character. There's uh, so much conflict. You know, you're told you have a heavenly father who loves you, but then why would he make you like this? Why would he let this happen? I'm a little older now. Um, I've lived through this. Um, I've prayed a lot. I've read a lot. I know from my own personal experiences with the spirit that my heavenly father loves me enormously. I don't know. Maybe this is something I volunteered for. But I know that he loves me and he loves all of us LGBTQ children. Um, there is a place for us in the plan of salvation. Just because we don't have it written down in a book of scripture someplace does not mean that he does not have a place reserved for us that is wonderful. I love that. Would you, if I had a red button here, would you push it to be made straight? Not anymore. I would have if you sure, had asked me when I was in the closet. Um, but no, not anymore. I, I, when I came out of the closet, this transformation began until, until that time I had never seen anything of value within myself, which my family would find shocking because I, I had fantastic grades all growing up. I played sports. I, um, had a full scholarship in college. I went to medical school. Um, I sing, I, I've, I've done so many things to, that they're proud of me for. Um, you know, growing up, people always thought, oh, the, those Seacrest boys, you know, they've got so much going for them. But I could not take any pride in any of that. I could not. It's interesting. I couldn't believe there was anything good about myself because of this great, big, what I perceived as a fault something that was so wrong with me that no good could make up for it. No matter how obedient I tried to be, no, how, no matter how good a missionary I was, no matter how quickly I learned Russian and later some Latvian, um, it didn't matter. Once I came out and accepted myself for who I am, that began to change. And now I can see these parts of myself and I can appreciate them and I can actually love myself. I know what that means now. When people say love yourself, I couldn't even conceive of that before. Um, Do you call that internalized homophobia? I think that's one word for it that some people use. Um, I just couldn't love yourself. Yeah. It was you saw this fault. It was self-directed hate, not just phobia, but I, I hated myself. Um, because I was broken and unacceptable. Um, and I, I was, I was just wrong. That was wrong. Um, that's what I was led to believe by the things I heard around me growing up, the lessons I was taught. Um, and it, it was just wrong. 
It was. You have a gift of communication, Michael, um, and a gift to share your story. Um, one of the things you said in your talk, I, I had hope in death. Um, I think one of the core doctrines of our church is hope, and I don't think it. Um, I don't think a LD, LGBTQ person could should only feel hope in death that, that then they're straight. So I, I love where you are now that you feel hope just the way you are and. It's very encouraging to hear your story, and I'm thinking of all the younger people that are listening to your story that will, not because you were weak, just because our, we've moved in a positive direction, they will get to the spot you are at an earlier age, oh, and you're so. seeing that. Um, talk about your family. I've met your good mom a couple times. Um, I sense they're doing a good job. You were complimentary to them in your state conference talk as they came out. Just any things you'd like to, any shouts out to them or any things that they've done that are helpful um, that would be good advice to other parents. And I think your dad has passed. I don't know if your dad's still alive. Oh, yeah. My, your my dad's, dad's still alive. Um, I just haven't met your dad. My parents retired. Uh, okay. My parents divorced and my dad is retired and okay. uh, lives in Idaho with his wife. Okay. Um, and my mom still lives in uh, Los Angeles That's County. That's why I met your mom. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, my, my family is wonderful. Um, they... Uh, they really do love me. They're amazing people. Um, they're all, they're all parents now. I'm the only single one, the only one with no children. Um, and it, they didn't know what to do when I came out to them. Um, but across the board, their answers were, we still love you. This doesn't change anything. And we're so sorry you had to deal with this alone all these years. We didn't know. Uh, I guess I was pretty good at throwing them off my path. Um, They've come a long way too. It was really hard for them at first. Um, but once they realized that I'm the same person I always was, just now they get to know all parts of me. Um, it, it, I think it helped them to, to settle in again and um, realize that I, I hadn't really changed. I was always me. That's good. Um, so one of the things you've said is that President Fersh prayed you to the Long Beach East Stake. So this talk happened in January. We're recording this podcast the same year in August. So that's, I'm not very good at math, Michael, seven months-ish. <laughs> um, talk about, um, I don't think you just gave a state conference talk and then he sort of checked the box and said, okay, we've we've checked the LGBTQ need in our stake. Well, that's it. He this was part of a, you know, creating Zion. And so there's a lot of stuff that's happened since your talk. Share with our listeners some of that. A lot of wonderful things have happened since that time. Um, and I don't think any of this was a coincidence. I had another job lined up. I remember that. You were really excited about that job. Yeah. And then uh, something came up and uh, uh, this other job came up and I thought, I need to go there. And if, if I hadn't had that happen, none, none of this would have happened. And um, you at that point weren't proactively going to go to church. It's just you ran into somebody that you knew. Yeah. I, I'd already been the, going to church for uh, a few weeks in, in Seal Beach. Oh, and you had been going I had to church. Been. I didn't understand. So you had proactively moved your records there and were going to church. Yeah. Um, because of the that, that prompting I'd gotten from the Spirit, I That's was... That's right. I was being very active, actually. I was trying to make friends. I was going to singing in the choir. I was doing everything I could to be fully active because, well, 
when, when the spirit hits me over the head like that, I'm, I'm going to try not to miss the boat. Um, so I was attending church. I wasn't sure yet who this person was, who I was supposed to help. And, and naive me, I thought when the spirit told me someone there needed me, that there might be one 13 or 14 year old who needed help. Um, so I thought if I'm going to find this, this poor kid, I need to be visible. People need to know me. Um, so I, I wasn't hiding in the corners. I was, I was there meeting people actively accepting assignments. Um, and then I was at Trader Joe's one day shopping and someone says, Mike, and I, I turn around and it's my friend, Don Carruth. Um, the Carruths, uh, we, we grew up together. Um, Don is a few years ahead of me and I hadn't seen him since, since high school. Um, and he, he was in another ward in our stake and, um, Turns out he's the executive secretary to President Fersh. He invited me over for dinner, he and his wife, Carlia, and we had a, a great evening and I came out to them because I hadn't seen them for years. And um, I, I told them what had been going on in my life and how I felt prompted to come to church here. And um, Don told me, you need to talk to the stake president. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> that could be a... Could... <laughs> yeah, it, it, that, could, that could be ominous, maybe coming from an executive secretary. But he said it with love. And he said that he said that, um, that he'd been talking a lot with the stake president. And some of the things that I told him um, made him think I, ne I needed to talk to the stake president. So he set up an interview for us. And um, I, I thought, okay, he sounds neat. And I, and I, and I trust Don. So... I went and, and we sat down and he shook my hand. We had a prayer. And, um, before I could say anything, he said, um, all right, let me just tell you where I'm coming from. And within 60 seconds, he told me about Marsha and Aiden. And he told me about his feelings about the LGBTQ space. And within those 60 seconds, he said so many loving and affirming things of, of, uh, gay and trans people. I just started crying. I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't realize that I still had wounds there. Um, but the, the loving and, and affirming things that he said, um, it, it was like salve being rubbed on a wound. It hurts a little at first. You didn't even realize you had an injury there, but, um, it was powerful. And he apologized. He said, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's good. It's good. Um, we only had, I think a 20 minute slot. I feel bad for the people who were waiting for an hour and a half while we talked. <laughs> wow. wow. Um, so since, since that time, um, after I did that talk, um, and it was received so well, um, we had another chat and he said, okay, Mike, what do we do now? <laughs> um, he actually gave me, um, a calling. Um, I'm on the stake public affairs committee. I'm kind of his LGBTQ specialist for the stake. And I do a lot of education. Um, and I, I want to say this actually, it, um, the church website, um, and there's a, a website within the church website that only leaders have access to counseling services.churchofjesuschrist.org. There is some fantastic information on there about LGBTQ issues. And if only all of our leaders in the church would read what is available there what the current policies are, we would be in a totally different space right now. Things would be much better than they are for our, our struggling LGBTQ youth in the church. That's cool. Yeah. The, the, the church really does have some good things on there. 
um, that, that this isn't a choice, that it's not something that we should expect to change. Don't encourage bargaining or um, don't suggest that uh, same-sex attractions will go away in, uh, in exchange for missionary service. Um, listen, listen, listen. When someone comes out to you, um, resist the urge to counsel, actually. Just listen and love, really. Um, there are so many good things on that website. Um, it makes it actually pretty easy to do. Say again how an LDS leader, I think a whole word, I can't remember who has access to that. If it's a whole word council, release society prison, young men's prison, young women's prison, or just the bishop. I'm not sure which callings get access to that. I'm not sure, but I, I have the information, but uh, I, I, I don't think my calling actually gives me access to that. I've just been provided the information. Yeah. But I think it's just available through as you log in through your through your church account, you can get access to that. Um, and maybe you go to a Mormon and gay website, read the stuff there, and then maybe you log in and you can see additional stuff. I don't know exactly how that works. <laughs> but with my with my calling, my assignment, it's it's been actually a, a huge blessing. Um, I'll sometimes be President Fersh's companion. When a teenager comes out to his family, I'll go as his companion to their home and help the parents figure wow. out how to deal with it. Um, when someone comes out to a bishop in my stake, they will sometimes call me and say, okay, this just happened. Um, uh, I, I'm not quite sure what to do. Do you have any suggestions or where to go, um, with this? And it, it's fantastic. Um, I, I love that I'm in a position to help the leaders, to help the, the, the people who are struggling. Um, we have... In our stake right now, we have um, a young man who came out to his family as gay who is putting in his mission papers. Um, we have um, this, the church in California is shrinking right now. My home stake in Palos Verdes was just combined with another. Um, and this is happening all over Southern California, at least. Um, but in our stake, we have families moving into the ward because of the messages that they've heard. Um, there was one family, um, after my talk, apparently people were talking about it online and, um, someone in, in Iowa, uh, heard about it. And, um, as a result, when their job transferred them to Southern California, they would only look at houses within our stake boundaries because of, they said, this is a message that we want our children hearing. They don't have any connection to the LGBT community at all. They just feel that that's an important message of love. We have people coming back out of inactivity um, because they've had problems with how people have been perceived in the church in the past. Um, it, it has really opened doors and made people feel comfortable. It's been wonderful. Yeah, one of the things I hear, you know, it's creating Zion is a tagline I hear from President Fersh, which is our doctrine. And if you're really serious about creating Zion, then you've got to help um, marginalized people feel like they can feel welcome. And I love the stories I'm hearing and I love the growth that I'm seeing. I don't have access to the metrics of your stake. I don't know how the brethren judge a stake from a metric standpoint, but I assume those are um, growing in every area as people feel welcome and, and they're coming into Christ as they feel welcome in church. And I think that is our doctrine. And um just keep telling about other programs. If um, I know there's two programs that yeah. I believe have been started in Long Beach East Stake. And yeah. I just want to make one comment about President Fersh. Because um, 
it was Marsha and Aiden. Um, I can't say their last name. Um, sorry, it's on the name of the po- earlier podcast that he was had exposure to, and that's certainly my journey. I had to listen to LGBTQ people to understand. I couldn't just have straight people tell me about this issue. So it was when I had a few gay men in my ward that everything moved for me, just like it hopefully is moving for listeners of our podcast as they hear stories like yours and and what happened in your stake with you speaking. And so I think that's a really important principle if if for all of us is we have to hear um, God finally said, if you want to know about my LGBTQ children, you better hear about, you better listen to my LGBTQ children, because then you'll see them as the way I see them. And I did a hard drive reset because I realized everything I'd picked up about Michael and all my LGBTQ friends was really from straight people telling me about them. And I thought, well, that's kind of not a good idea. And I didn't even know what was in there that I had picked up that was accurate or not. So I just had to wipe it all clean and said, well, I'm just going to start by listening to LGBTQ people. And that's been transforming for me. But I think that's a principle of ministering. And and a principle of ministering is listening. And I love the way he listened. I love the way in those first 60 seconds from what he said, that it just brought tears to your eyes because you knew you could trust him. And what a great principle that I hope all of us as local leaders, I'm not a, serving in a, as a bishop anymore, so I don't want to infer that I am, um, are able to do is to know enough about different areas that we create safety so people open up. But um, any more thoughts on that, or you can talk about the new programs that have started? Well, I do want to say that being an openly gay man in the church is fantastic. Um, everyone knows who I am now. Everyone in my stake knows my heart. I, you belong. I, I belong there. And you have blue eyes. I do have blue eyes. Actually. Well, you have hazel eyes. I have hazel I, eyes. I hope I'm getting that. But Metaphorically hazel eyes. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Um, but uh, everyone there knows me and they know my heart. Um, I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve. I don't, I'm not hard to read. Um, and being an openly gay man has some wonderful advantages, actually. Um, when I see a struggling sister sitting alone in the back of the chapel after sacrament meeting ends, um, I can just run back there and put my arm around her. And it's not weird at all. I can just say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? And that that happens from time to time. I feel like I have a very privileged position, actually, where um, I, I'm seen as non-threatening as, as, as a man toward the women. Um, and I can do some things there. It's it's a, another little area and little niche of ministering that I feel like I, I'm really blessed. Um, so after the state conference talk was so well received, President Fersh asked me, where do you think we go from here? And I said, well, my friend Susie Augenstein in Utah has what they call LGBTQ Sunday School. It's not a church program. This is done completely outside of the church. But she felt very strongly that these these LGBTQ people she was meeting um, needed a, a place to gather where they could have some spiritual sustenance, um, some familiarity with their their faith tradition. And so she created this this weekly meeting every Sunday at her home or or at uh, Allison and George Doyson's home or uh, or uh, Vicky's home. There are a number of wonderful people that that host it. And so I told President Fersh about that and he said, make it happen. Do it. And so I started working on it. Um, and while I was getting this ready to go, um, 
figuring out how it was going to work, uh, word spread. And, um, we, uh, there were bishops on the other side of Los Angeles who heard about it from other people. We hadn't even had our first meeting yet. Um, and, um, area authorities and people found out, uh, that what we were doing and, and they, they had conversations with president Fersh and, and I for sure thought, well, that's the end of that before we even started. Um, but everything we've done has gotten such good results that, um, we've been able to continue. And the only feedback that I got on my LGBTQ Sunday school plans was that I had to change the name because the church does not have Sunday schools for any particular demographic group. So I changed it to LGBT family home evening. And so I, I have that now every third Sunday. Um, and I had this wonderful, do you have that in church or do you have that in a member's no, home? You know, um, I'm very conscious of the pain that a lot of, um, gay and trans members have associated with church. Some people actually start sweating and shaking when they think about entering a church building. So, uh, we have it in people's homes. Um, and I, I have the most wonderful problem in my stake of having too many straight people who want to be loving and want to be allies. It, it I wanted to preserve the family home evening group for LGBTQ people to be able to speak freely and express their pain and uh, say what they need to say. And sometimes it's hard for, for, um, you know, dyed in the wool straight members of the church to hear some of those things. No, no one really likes to hear that their church has caused people pain. Right. Um, so I wanted to preserve that space as a safe place. And um, we had all these straight friends who wanted to help in some way and they were volunteering to host um the fam home evening um at this point um oh and at this point also president first introduced me to uh, my friend scott osmond um scott um had met with president first right before like the week before my state conference talk but uh scott wasn't able to attend so i didn't meet him then but i met him uh, about a, a month later and um i was so impressed with scott he, he is a powerful spirit. Uh, he's really a great man. And, um, he, um, when I told him what we were planning, he, he was very willing to help. Um, and so the, the two of us have, have been, um, uh, you know, helping and organizing with these things. What happens at, um, LGBTQ FHE in a member's home. So it's LGBTQ people. Maybe the members are allies, but you'd kind of want it to be LGBTQ people. Um, I get that. And then I think you started um, Allies Night. Yeah, that's uh, the so next the thing. Allies, but talk about what happens at LGBTQ FHE. At Family Home Evening, um, we have a lesson by someone. Um, it's pretty free format, um, much much like Family Home Evenings we all grew up with. Um, but there's an inspirational thought. And um, because there's a whole variety of people as far as their faith journey in that group. Um, it could be something from the scriptures. It could be something from a Ted talk. It could be something uh, from their journal. It could be a, um, anything that they feel inspires them. It could, it could be an excerpt from a Brene Brown book. Um, and then we'll discuss people may um, share things that have happened to them in the last month, um, share parts of their journey. Um, I remember the first meeting I led the discussion and then we went around the room and everyone said who they were, where, where they were from and how, how they identified. And the spirit was so powerful in that room. Um, you can ask any, there, there were, I think 
oh, there were about 20 people in that room and um, most of them were LGBTQ. Um, but you can ask the few straight people who were there and they'll tell you how palpable the spirit was in that room. It was powerful. Um, a lot of healing began that day too. Um, after our first, and I think it was close to after our second meeting, um, my friend Rebecca, Rebecca Kraft in, in Irvine, absolutely wonderful, powerful, exceptional woman. I her, agree. Whole, her whole family is wonderful. I go down to their house just to spend time with them all, all the time. Um, who also, Rebecca has prepared a ministering guide, which is uh, a bunch of church materials actually that she has compiled. Her document is not a church approved document, but it is made up of, of uh, quotes from general authorities and, and uh, useful sources. Um, and it's been a great resource for a lot of people who want to do something similar to what we're doing. And I'm just, <clears throat> if anyone wants access to Rebecca Kraft's document, you can go to listenloveandlearn.org and then look under resources for articles. And it's it's one of the articles in the resources section. It's, it's a great document, as you're saying, Michael. I'm so glad that you're providing access to that. That's wonderful. I hope it spreads far and wide. Um, so uh, around the time of our second meeting, um, Rebecca called me and said, Hey, um, Ben Shalati is coming down to go to Disneyland. Uh, we're going to meet for dinner. Would you like to come? And I said, yeah, I'd love to see Ben. I haven't seen Ben in a while. Um, ben and I had met at a, a conference a couple years before that, but we didn't really know each other very well. So I, I met them at downtown Disney. We went, went out to dinner and, um, we, we talked a bit about what we're doing and Ben has had some similar experiences in Tucson, Arizona. And I, I told Ben that I have the most wonderful problem in the whole world. I have all of these wonderful straight people who want to love us and help us. And yet I want to preserve the Fam Home Evening Group. And I don't want to tell people not to come, but I really want to maintain that safe space. And he said, well, what about Ally Nights? I did Ally Nights in Tucson. I'm like, wait, what? He said, well, you, you have a couple of LGBT people go to someone's home, a, a small group, and, and you just share your stories and they can ask questions. And and the, the, the lights just clicked on in my head and I said, this is it. This is perfect. I took it back to President Fersh and I, I said, this is, this is how we're going to do this because I don't want to tell people not to come to our Fem Home Evening, but we can provide another space, another opportunity. Um, so we've had several of those and our, it's either our third or fourth Ally Night is actually happening tonight. I'm flying back to Long Beach just in time to make it to Ally Night. Um, we have had some. Are they amazing. monthly? Monthly. Are both events monthly? Ally nights are every second Sunday. Um, and the fam home evenings are every third Sunday. And I have to tell you, I I have been so impressed and blown away by the the members who have been helping us to do these things. Um, our ally nights are are uh, held in the home of um, Laurie and Bryce Pollard, and they have been so gracious in opening their home to us. And we fill their home with um, allies, people who want to ask questions, people who have a, a gay relative, people who have a gay child or a trans child. And um, um, our family home evenings um, are frequently held in the home of uh, Tom and Shar Alstrom. Um, and they, um, Tom was the stake president prior to President Fersh. And after he was released, two of his sons came out as gay. Um, and they. Way to go, Alstroms. I've heard great things about you. I wish I knew every family you were talking about, but I've um, traded messages with Shar and I'm recognized this is a wonderful family that serves so faithfully in that stake and have two gay sons and continue to serve in wonderful ways. 
powerful people, wonderful people. And um, Jim and Mary Greer are on the State Public Affairs Committee, and they've helped me so much organizing all of this. Um, and then my, I have these just absolutely amazing uh, gay and lesbian friends who are all come from all over Los Angeles to participate in these and to help at Ally Nights. I, I wanted to only bring really, you know, comfortable out people to Ally Nights to help answer questions. And I thought I was going to have to hunt for them. And these, these wonderful friends of mine just, they love it. And then they, they come voluntarily and um, contribute their their input, their stories, they answer questions. Um, Sarah Bowers, Chelsea Gibbs, um, these wonderful women have, they grew up in the church. Sarah was a Relief Society president. Um, Chelsea uh, grew up in the home, our father was a bishop and she has a knowledge of the scriptures that is is astounding. And when people ask us a question, well, how do you experience this as a, as a gay Latter-day Saint? And she can bring scriptures into the discussion and it never ceases to blow me away. Um, I've been really blessed with some amazing friends to, um, gay and straight to help move this work forward, to, to help, um, people learn and love. You use the word belong. And I think about that a lot, a lot. And I think it's, it's one thing to sort of say, we're going to minister to you, Michael, and we recognize you have a harder road, but it's another thing where we're wanting to learn about, our doctrine from you um, and your scriptural insights and and so and your life stories and to hear there's something about creating a feeling of belonging where we need you to help us become the body of Christ that we need to be because we need your gifts and attributes and and view and spiritual insights so that's one of the things that I love about this that's going on in the Long Beach East Stake because. I just think more LGBTQ people feel like they belong and their voices are needed for straight people to, to be able to grow and even have additional spiritual insights through the things we're learning. I know that I kind of thought first I'd be the straight guy helping to rescue, but I've really realized that LGBTQ people have helped me become a better disciple of Christ because of the things they've taught me. So in some ways I've been rescued by my LDS LGBTQ friends as I've listened to them. And as that happens, I think it creates a feeling of belonging for you is that you're able to help um, us become the body of Christ that we need to be. Absolutely. Do you know if what, and this is a question for President First, so you're speaking for him. Do you know if he has um, area presidency support for what he's doing or is he kind of out there? <laughs> um, uh, he's, he's, um, uh, he's done a lot of outside of the box things before this. Um, I, I don't know if you've had much experience in the, the interfaith council realm or interfaith groups, but, um, those groups generally distrust Mormons. Um, there's a feeling of distrust there that, that they can't count on us to put our, to put our money where our mouth is. Um, present first was a con is a convert to the church and has sort of a different experience and, He's created very strong friendships with, um, there are a couple of um, uh, black churches that we have friendships with and they'll bring their, um, the Garden of Praise choir will come sing in our church sometimes. Um, and we, we will join them um, to do this Midnight Warriors project where um, 
our members and their members will meet and, and go up into downtown Los Angeles to Skid Row and sit down with homeless people and talk to them, hear their stories, ask their name, make them feel human, make them feel seen and put a blanket around their shoulders. Um, it's just the most Christ-like thing I can imagine. And it's something that uh, makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, President Fersh was last year given an award by the Interfaith Council in, in our area of Southern California. Um, he was awarded Religious Leader of the Year. That's a big deal for... He's an, never told me that. For an LDS stake president to get an award from an interfaith group is huge. And I think that um, the, the church leadership over him, the area authorities, realize that um, he's getting results. Um, we're, we're, we're doing great things. People are remaining active and coming back to activity and, um, hearts are, are changing. There's a real feeling inside of our stake. People are, have open hearts and great big hearts. Um, you have to come to our stake to really understand what I'm saying. I, I can't really convey it. You have to feel it. I think from my um, feedback and talking with President Fersh, and he can speak for himself, um, that he does have various area th presidency support for what he's doing. I understand the name um, LGBTQFHE was blessed by the area presidency, and that's the reason it changed from Sunday school. And so that's one of the things I want to communicate to our listeners, especially if you're a local leader, that what's happening in the Long Beach East Stake is um, within the doctrine of our church, it's supported um, by his leaders, and it's resulting in in the things that we want to have accomplished with the ministering program. This is the ministering program. Everything that you're talking about is our responsibility, our baptism covenants to bear, mourn, and comfort. And sometimes we, my brother was talking about this, sometimes we have great talks that they need to minister, but we don't really know how to minister. And so this is why I love what's happening in your stake and many other stakes, because I think we're applying what we're trying to do with the doctrine of Christ and make our stakes, you know, Zion for everybody. Any more thoughts on any of that, Michael? Yeah. Um, when I got my, my calling, um, really public to, affairs. Yeah. And sort of to be this assignment, sort of to be the LGBTQ specialist, sort of, that's kind of my unofficial title. Um, but uh, President Fersh, he, he really does follow through. Um, and he told me that he and some of his bishops had already committed to go door to door with me and to knock on the doors of, of members who were not active that they felt were probably somewhere in LGBTQ space. Um, and I, I at first thought, wow, that's, that's, that's great that you're willing to do that, but what am I supposed to tell them? Um, I've already told you a little bit about how painful it can be to be a member, a gay member of this church. It's, um, I think another of your podcasts, Kate Toronto talked a lot about how the people who remain, the, the gay people who remain engaged in the church actually have some poorer life outcomes. And, um, those gay people who step away may actually have some healthier coping mechanisms because those of us who stay are constantly putting our nose to the grindstone. Um, so I thought, what can I tell these people when I go door to door? 
um, I can't tell them it's safe. Ollie, ollie, oxen free, come out, come out wherever you are. Because it's not. There will be things said that hurt. That'll still happen. But I told, I told President Fersh, I, I can't tell them it's safe. But I can tell them that we're trying. That we're trying to make a safer place. We're trying to change the culture. And I can't do it alone. Will you please come sit with me? Let the members get to know you. And that's that's where we stand with that. It's really cool. And I found it interesting. We did episode 162, Scott Osmond. Um, you've referred to Scott as a close friend. And um, Bishop Perry and President First knocked on his door. You mentioned that. But I just thought, if you thought a stake president and a bishop are going to knock on a member's door, you probably think that's an evening visit. It was at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I think I just have thought about that over and over again, that those two men left the building. They could. There's many meetings there. There's busy. We stay busy with meetings. And they said, no, if we're going to impact people's lives, we're going to leave the building on a Sunday. Now, I'm not saying everybody should leave the building on a Sunday. I remember being in a ward council um, as a YSA bishop. We talked about a young man, and I felt impressed to dismiss ward council right then. And my counselor and I went to his home, and I just felt impressed to do that. Now, he wasn't there, but he was aware that we came <laughs> as we talked to his family, and it was the key thing that con allowed us to connect with him. Um, as we came back, but I just love the inspiration that he just thought, you know, I'm not just going to talk about ministering. I'm not going to give another talk about ministering. I'm just going to go do this by knocking on Scott's door. And the same thing that you've been doing with bishops. And um, I'd love your honest conversation. So that's, um, I think that's a wonderful principle of ministering. I've talked to many stake presidents. It's interesting, as, as I've been in this space, just a couple of years, Scott, you've been in this space. You came out at age 13, I think, you know, three decades, two decades ago. Um, if I can do my math, mid-30s, 13, that's roughly two decades. But I've noticed just more local leaders wanting to do something in this space. And they've there's been a shift where instead of looking at LGBTQ people as another group of people, they're an outside threat. This is Rebecca... Craft did such a good post on, they look at them as their people, and they look at them as having a priesthood responsibility to minister to LGBTQ people that they have stewardship responsibility over. And that certainly happened for me, but it didn't happen until I met a couple of gay men. And so they want to do something. <laughs> um, and that's why FHE, um, LGBTQ, FHE, and, F and Allies Night are two really interesting programs that I think are scalable. I think when I hear areas of presidency support um, and promoting that within promoting that at church, even though it's not held at church, to me those are scalable programs. And I'm hearing more and more stakes trying to do what your stake is doing and recognizing the needs. So that gives me hope. And I guess one of my hopes is this becomes a standardized program that maybe a group of stakes do, or maybe each stake does. And so there's an ongoing support network for LGBTQ people that's a, sort of an authorized church program. So I think you're trailblazers. Someone told me primary started in, in California somewhere. And um, I hope that's true, listeners. Maybe 
And that then the church saw that and saw the importance of primary. Now, I'm not saying we get ahead of the brethren and we do things that are not consistent with our doctrine, and you're not. You're doing ministering, and you're meeting the spiritual needs like President Ballard asked us to do to meet the spiritual needs of our LGBTQ members. So um, the Long Beach East Stake is doing a lot of good work to do that. And when I see Scott being healed and you and others, it's happening. So it does make me think if what you're doing is scalable um, and can be something that's normalized, I guess, as a word or scalable and become a church-wide program, or at least an optional church-wide program, if, if a local leader says, this is something we need to do in our area, then that local leader has a ready-to-go program. You know, um, Thoughts um, on that, Scott? I mean, now I'm confusing with <laughs> Michael. <laughs> um I, I did have one thought uh, when you said, you know, getting ahead of the brethren. We had a Sunday school lesson recently in Acts 10, 11. Um, do you know, remember the story about Cornelius? Yeah. He's a centurion. And Cornelius... It's a Gentile then. It's a Gentile, not yeah. a member of the church, but a man of God nonetheless. Yeah. And he had revelation as not a member of the church. He had a revelation that he needed something that Peter had. He and God wanted him to talk to Peter. Peter, um, in a, in a dream, he needed to see the same dream several times in order to get the message. Um, but he he got the message, and when Peter got the message finally, Cornelius's men were already knocking on the door. They were acting. They were ready when Peter got the message. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I agree. Talk about your hopes for the future, your personal hopes. You're on this path in the church as a gay man where you've got, you know, you could still marry a woman. I think you've told us that's probably not going to happen. You could stay celibate um, or you could marry a man. Do you want to talk about your hopes for your future? I'm always willing to talk about my hopes for my future. This is, uh, this podcast is all about me getting personal. So, um, and we have a, we have a friend, Kurt, Kurt and Mary. Um, they've, uh, Kurt has done a podcast with you over the telephone. Kurt is a, um, another amazing, powerful man and has become a really good friend. And unfortunately, in your podcast, you only hear from Kurt, so you don't understand the amazing, powerful, wonderful woman on the other side of so that equation. What's his wife's name? Is Mary. Mary? Yeah. They are two of my favorite people in the entire world. Um, they've taught me so much. Um, and, and Kurt said something in his podcast that he and I have talked about at length. Um, this is a journey. And all of us have our own journey. Um, in, in any institution or organization, it simplifies things to have a one-size-fits-all message. You, that's all you can really do. You can put out a message that fits most people, but it's not going to fit everybody perfectly. Um, and that's where individual revelation comes in. Um, this particular topic is something that has been so taboo in the past um, and it's, it's less taboo now. We're talking about it more, but there is still not 
a whole lot of guidance. There's more than there was, and it's much better than it was. But the responsibility still falls on us as individuals. When LGBT people interact with priesthood leaders, trust me, we have thought and prayed about this years longer than you've been thinking about it. Years longer. And we have been relying on the Spirit to guide us every step of that painful journey. There has been a wealth of personal revelation that each of us may have received. And I think that um, we should respect that. And Kurt talked about this. He said that someone might be guided to marry a woman, enter a mixed orientation marriage. Um, some might be guided to remain celibate and single in this life. Someone actually might be guided to marry someone of the same sex. I believe that. And I feel that that is my eventual path. Um, I don't think I've met my partner yet, but I, because of the promptings that I've gotten, believe that I was put here on earth to love someone and be loved by someone. And that is going to be a man. Um, it's this entering this topic can make some people feel uncomfortable. And I understand that. Um, but that to me feels as normal and natural as a straight man talking about wanting to marry a woman someday. To me, they're, they're, the feelings are the same. Um, there's no difference there. And um, I hope for all the same blessings. I hope for all the same lessons that, that I can learn in marriage that I've seen my siblings learn in their marriages. I think that that's a wonderful growing experience. And I think that that is one of the reasons that we're put here on earth. And, and I, in particular, I, I believe, um, I believe there's a partner out there for me somewhere and I don't think I've met him yet, but I think he's there and I hope he's got his eyes open, at least looking for me too. I'm really comfortable with your answer. I think if I were your priesthood leader or your friend or your family member, I need to ask about your hopes. I need to know that part about you and I need to honor your hopes. So even though your hopes take you outside the doctrine of our church, I invite everybody to stay in the doctrine of our church. Everything good in my life comes from living the doctrine of the church. I would recognize the reality of your path may be different. And I would just leave that at the Savior's feet. Yeah, if I were your priestly leader, I invite you to stay. But I'd probably also um, honor your hopes and say that my relationship you with you will not change. And I will walk with you on any road you choose to walk on. Yeah, your ability to fully participate in the church may change. We will talk about that <laughs> at the appropriate time. But I think it's a principle of ministering to be able to have you share your hopes with me. Um if I'm, uh, no matter who I am in your life, and to just honor those hopes, who uh, I wouldn't want to take hope away from you. Um, I wouldn't want to do that, Michael. That seems like, and you would, and I would just honor your personal revelation, and I, and I, just leave it the Savior's feet. That's the best way I can answer that. Um, I. You know, Kurt Nielsen was a great podcast. 147 is the episode. And I've certainly recognized, you know, how difficult it is to be alone your whole life. Um, you know that. 
So I'm really, I'm glad to hear your answer. I think I would hope your hopes become reality. I think that's part of my responsibility as your friend is to help you feel like I'm supportive of your hopes and that they become reality. Um, it's the only way I can reconcile that as a faithful Latter-day Saint who supports our doctrine and not, and not even asking for it to change, supportive of our leaders, but also recognizing that your road is much more difficult than our straight members. I don't know if that's okay. Um, it's just, I'm glad we're talking about it because it's, it's just a difficult, really difficult space. Um, when I talked earlier about um, how I was praying whether or not I needed to attend church in my new location, um, I was obviously prepared not to attend church. Um, I love attending church. I love it. It's, it's my home. I love singing the hymns. I love being a part of that community. Um, but when that spiritual prompting brought me back to church, I knew very well that I might not always be able to participate fully in the church. Um, if I do get married someday to another man, and if then I'm not able to participate fully in the church, I, I may remain as active as I can. Good. Um, I, I don't know what that's going to look like quite yet. That's okay. But I know that my leaders, when I introduce them to my someday husband, will say, all right, bring him to church. That's great. What a great answer. And I'm sorry your record was annotated if I'm saying that right. I just recognize when you told me that, I've forgotten about that. When you told me that once in one of our visits, um, and you told me at the context of how much you love children and you want to become a pediatrician and how opposite that annotation is to reflect your heart. And I, I just think that's an example of the, of the limitations of our institutional side of our church. For our listeners, I talk about a restored church with doctrine that I believe in, loving heavenly parents that are equal co-creators that love you, Michael, and have created you and their likeness and image. And I don't think they're up there going, oh no, what happened? Michael's gay. I think they are up there saying, this is who you are, and this is who we intended you to be. And this is something perhaps we both discussed in pre-mortal life because of our doctrine. We have the idea of pre-mortality and these earthly missions that may be kind of co-created in the pre-earth life. Um, so I'm very comfortable with all of that. And I think it fits into our doctrine in a better way than any other church because of our understanding of the plan of salvation and heavenly parents. But I recognize our institutional church is a, is a mortal organization um, that I sustain and support that's trying to implement our, our doctrine, our restored church, where our doctrine is and our priesthood power is. And our institutional church has priesthood power, but I just recognize we make mistakes. And so I think as a priesthood leader, as a fellow member, I have to I, I think it's better for me to acknowledge something like that, that that's painful and that was a mistake versus somehow explain it away that minimizes the potential pain to you. So that's really painful. We haven't talked much about that. You moved on pretty quickly. But if I, I that's a lot of pain, knowing your heart and what that represents. And I'm just sorry that that's part of your membership record. And maybe that has been taken away or will be taken away. You're right, it is a first presidency and you 
have managed just kind of maybe put that on the shelf and say, it is what it is. And I know God doesn't feel that way about me. And I know President First doesn't feel that way about me and my faith community in Long Beach East Stake. And so maybe you're able to just move forward. But you've had to deal with really difficult things. I have. It hasn't been an easy journey by any means. Uh, but the things that I've gone through have made me who I am now. And I like who I am. And who you are is awesome. And it's an honor to know you, Michael. I've, I can't remember how we first met, but I've, I've enjoyed our visits, and you're one of the finest men I know. And I, I'm so honored to have done this podcast with you, but you know, you are one of God's finest sons, and you were sent here on the earth to heal people and bring people hope. And that is your life mission, and you're doing that professionally with your career, and you're doing that um, with your religious work. And I just have to think of all the lives that have changed because of you and your life in the church and what you did in that Long Beach um, State Conference and what you continue to do. And that young man who's gay and out to his parents and his bishop who's serving a mission, and just think of where he is compared to where you were. And just the understanding that and the, he won't be making deals and he won't look in the mirror and thinking himself as broken or a fault. He will look at himself, I hope, if you're listening or, or if you're one of these young men or young women going on missions, you have to look at yourself a beloved child of God who's created in their image is worthy of their love because who you are is awesome. And he, so you're one of my heroes, Michael. And you need to hear that because it's true. And you said in this podcast a little bit, it's hard sometimes to hear that about yourself because you still see this potentially broken part of you. And I think you're healing from that. Um, but I don't, I don't, God doesn't see you that way. And I think you know that. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? There was one thing I was thinking about and de debating whether or not to share. Um, we talked about pain a little bit. Um, and, uh, at our last ally night, something made me think about this. Um, one of our lesbian friends brought up at the end of the meeting, um, there had been some talk about the November, 2015 policy reversal. Right. And at, after, right at the end of the meeting, she said, I need to say this. I just want everyone to know that this is still pretty raw for some of us. I just want you to know that it's a delicate subject and, and it, it still stings. And a man on the other side of the room, a good man, um, he said, he, he said, is that because it didn't come with an apology? And I thought, it's kind of irrelevant. Um, apology, no apology. Um, I can't, I, I, th I thought of it like this, that, that policy for anyone who's not clear on it in November, 2015, the church instituted a policy that made, um, anyone in a same sex marriage de declared them apostate. Um, and also stated that their children could not be blessed, baptized, or go on a mission until they reach the age of 18 and disavow their parents' relationship. Um, and then when that was kind of quietly and suddenly made to go away. Um, people, well, President Fersh actually called me and said, how do you feel? Isn't, isn't that wonderful? 
And I, I said, kind of in a monotone, yeah, that's wonderful. That's great. And I, I was puzzled. I, I thought, why am I not thrilled? And it, it took talking to some other friends to, to put my feelings together. Um, imagine you're, stand, you're standing outside your home and you, there's another person there and you see this person set your house on fire. You're watching your house burn. There's nothing you can do about it. The person walks away. And, and at this point, your entire neighborhood has gathered in the street. They saw the flames. They're watching your house burn. They're saying, this is terrible. This is terrible. We, we don't understand how this happened. Then the person who started the fire comes back with a fire hose and puts out the fire. And everyone says, isn't it great? They put out your fire. Yeah, but they started the fire and my cat died. I don't know if my family is safe. Apology or no apology, it, it was hard for us when it, the policy was created and when the policy disappeared. It, it, it was hard. Um, it's things like these that make it hard for us to remain. And I understand that for our straight members, it's hard to understand why that hurts us. But if you can picture it in those terms, we don't hate the church, but the church does hurt us sometimes. Um, I just, I wanted to share that. I felt like it, it was important and we need to acknowledge people's pain. Um, yeah, I hope that was all right. That was great. And I love the fire analogy. And so it helps me understand the pain, I think. We had Brother Eric Huntsman from BYU, be a bright professor on the podcast, and he taught me about a platitude, a word, I've, a phrase I've heard my whole life, but I've never really defined it. And he talked about in the context of his autistic son, that people, when his son was diagnosed, would say, well, this will be for your good and your family will be stronger. And he started to get kind of angry that people would explain away his pain in those kind of terms versus asking Brother Huntsman, how do you feel? What's this like now to have your only son autistic and all your hopes and dreams change? And, and it's really painful to have an autistic son. And a platitude, I think, keeps me emotionally safe. So if I want to stay emotionally safe and sort of keep, then I would say a platitude like that or the policy statements, you know, was better in the long run for the church because it caused us to grow. I don't know. We could say something that dismisses the pain, but I think that fails to fully minister. So I think in the case of Brother Huntsman, to understand what it's like to have an autistic son, I've got to listen to what that's like and, and feel his dreams potentially change, even though he loves his son. And if I've got to know how the policy statements affects LGBTQ people, I've got to listen to LGBTQ people. And they may not be able to articulate that for a period of time, just like you weren't with President Fursh, because it's deeply emotional, and you've got to kind of spend some time to process that. Ben Shalati said it was like a scab that kind of started to heal, then it just got ripped off again. And that was another very good analogy for me to sort of understand. 
Um, for me, the policy statements being reversed was just great news from day the moment one. But I recognize that the straight allies process that much differently than our LDS LGBTQ members. And I had to, and probably made some mistakes on social media, to be honest, with my initial joy of that, realizing that this could be re-traumatizing for LGBTQ people. And as the ally, I need to make sure my voice is about not me and how I'm feeling about the policy statements reversal, which was good news, but how my LGBTQ brothers are feeling about that, making sure as an ally, I'm bringing their voices to light. Um, and that's why I'm glad you shared the the fire analogy. And I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone, but I really, really want to press on everyone that this is a sensitive population. Remember the 13-year-old boy that I described in my story? Yeah. I was walking on a knife's edge. And when, when certain people in general conference or um, at... Um, large firesides when they say things that make those closeted suffering people feel hopeless people die when that policy in november 2015 came into effect people died agreed and i don't think people realize the power of their words i i want my leaders to think a little, a little more about the power of their words from that pulpit. When I was 13, I was, I was watching General Conference and just grasping at anything that it would give me some hope. I, if, if the wrong thing had been said, it could have put me over the edge. I, who knows where I would be now? Do you remember that bishop's name you came out to? I do. I do. We, we're still really good friends. His, I'm glad. His name's Chip Rawlings. And is he, so are you still good friends with him? Yeah. He's like a father to me. You know, Chip Rawlings, if you're listening, what you did for this 13-year-old boy, I don't know what year that is, you know, and what you were able to do, you saved a life. You absolutely saved a life. And, and we can all do what that bishop did and what President Fersh is doing. And we can hear your voices and see your contributions. So, Michael Seacrest, thank you for joining us on and our listeners on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.